Lord, through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Many of you who know me, or have talked theology with me, or have read any of the articles that I've written, probably know that I don't really think that experience should shape our theological postulations and theorizations. We tend to think when we tend to do that, we subjectivize what is an objective sacramental message that Christ died for you and provides for you objectively in the sacraments. In fact, traditions that where it becomes the norm to devolve into using experience as the main way to formulate theology either become politically activist, which is where our church has come out of, the ACNA from the Episcopal Church, uh, because they base their theology on things like cultural experiences such as race, class, etc., which, of course, are things any theology should address. The problem is they make those things the primary focus by which you view all other theological issues rather than vice versa. So either you get hyper-political activism, which is really just a form of Pelagianism in disguise, which is a whole other sermon, or you can very quickly slide into charismania, where people are all hearing individual words from God instead of the word of the Lord through Scripture and the administration of the sacraments. Yet at the same time, we are beings who live in space and time, and we do have experiences. Some of you know that I attended a conference this week in Dallas, Texas, go Cowboys, for the Association of Classical Christian Schools. And while I don't think the experience of attending that conference changed my theology any, being attuned to God moving and working in our lives, in our experiences, can be so, so, so beneficial. I mean, not only was I fed by hearing the word proclaimed in a way that I needed to hear as a minister, as a teacher, as a Christian, but there were other things where the spirit was just working and it's hard to even explain the providential work that he did, but maybe I'll use it as an illustration at some point, but not today. What I want to talk about today has to do with that divine providence that moves in our lives, that works through our experiences, even though we may not think primarily about those experiences because of uh, what we have experienced, but rather because of what scripture says and what we encounter in the sacraments. What I want to talk about today is that providence, which is by definition God's largeness, his transcendence, his vastness, his powerfulness, but also his nearness, his love, his care for the world in which we find ourselves. These seemingly contradictory realities are depicted very strongly in all four of our readings from this morning, but not to be contrasted against one another as if they're in competition, but rather they're harmonized because God is love. But first, some fun facts. Did you know that the universe that we inhabit is vast beyond comprehension? I mean, you might know in your head, but do you really know how big the universe is? I mean, it's amazing. If you buy the interpretation of data by modern scientists, and again, there are probably different Anglican opinions on this, like there are different Anglican opinions on every other issue. But if you buy the data by modern scientists, the universe is roughly 13.7 billion years old. There are over 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe alone. 
And for those of you who may be unclear what exactly a galaxy is, according to the New Oxford Dictionary, it's a system of millions or billions of stars. So there are hundred billions of these systems of hundreds and millions and billions of stars. And they're held together by gravitational attraction. Our individual galaxy, the Milky Way, contains somewhere around 200 billion stars alone, just by itself. Only 4% of the universe is even composed of visible matter. The remaining 96% is composed of invisible dark matter and dark energy. The universe is so enormous, we can't even understand what shape it is. It might be a circle, it might be a disk shape, we don't know. There's debate about that. It might be ever-expanding, it may have boundaries, we'll never know. Even when it comes to our own solar system, things are incomprehensibly large. For example, did you know one million Earths can fit inside the sun? Even on Earth, think about how small we are in relation to other things. Stand next to a mountain. I mean, we get to, when I drive to school in the morning, I come around a bend on the Blue Ridge Parkway and I get to see all these foothills. They're not even real mountains and they're huge. Try to comprehend the height of the tallest mountain, the depths of the lowest canyon, the vast expanses of wide open plains. Flyover country is good for something. All of these things accentuate the reality that we are small, that we are tiny, that we are minuscule. Yet at the same time, they accentuate just how big God is, or maybe to be more precise, how infinite God is. God made those mountains. God made those canyons. God made those plains. God created our planet and our solar system. He created the Milky Way and the hundred billions of other galaxies which exist in our universe. He composed even the dark invisible matter which we can't see. And he's much, much, much older than the universe by approximately infinity. <laughs> Who can grasp God? I've had a hard enough time grasping how the sun could be the size that the sun is. Indeed, the scriptural and traditional testimony of the church is that the world cannot and will not understand who God is through our mental faculties alone. Righteous Father, Jesus prays in John 17, 25, the world does not know you. In Acts 17, Paul describes the search for God as groping, stumbling. Any truth that the pagan cultures could derive on their own was almost an accident. <laughs> Why is it so hard for us to find God? The answer is because he's something that we're not. Think about this. We're beings, individual beings, but God is being itself. We're finite temporal creatures, but God is the infinite creator who's outside of all time. Without some help, it's impossible for us to grasp God, but definitionally, it's entirely possible for God to grasp us. Yet here's the kicker. In spite of his otherness, and his infiniteness, God still loves us. And it makes absolutely no sense that he does. There's an old French liturgy, and I will save you my attempt to pronounce it in the French, but the translation is, the love of God is folly. Not that us loving God is folly, but rather the, the fact that God even would care, that God would even love us, makes no rational sense to us because we're so small. Now, there's a general sense in which we love nature, right? Like, I mean, most of us, I, I mean, we live in central Virginia. We've got all these mountains and foothills. 
it's really nice to observe the ant when you're outside doing yard work and you see them scurrying along. But do you really love an ant, like in a personal way? Like the most I've ever done for an ant is I stepped, I was careful to not step on one. <laughs> I've never like picked one up and made it a pet or, you know, loved it in any real capacity. So what we see today though in our reading is a God who's infinitely larger in proportion to us than we are to an ant. And the cool thing about today's reading is that we see this dynamic tension between imminence and transcendence, God's nearness and his distance, God's presence and his vastness, his, his infiniteness. We see a tension between those things, first in our Old Testament reading from Job and then in the psalm that we prayed. One of them makes him appear very distant, the Job reading, and in the psalm reading, he's very close because of his steadfast love. But those are things that we see, those realities that we see through a mirror dimly lit. And so we see both the imminence and transcendence of God clarified even more in the New Testament readings. Job is a somewhat annoying book because the human characters in the book don't get it right. None of them are right and they're all annoying about it. It's like, well, I'll say it. It's like when you have the young Calvinist friend with the beard and the pipe who drinks IPAs and they're always arguing with you about the audience. Just, just lay off. We're all familiar with Job's friends who upon seeing their friend going through some of the darkest times of his life, some of the most excruciating pain and suffering that a human being could ever endure, and they sit with them for seven days, which is, which is nice of them, but then immediately, once those seven days are over, they accuse him, saying, Job, look at all this pain and suffering that you're going through. There's only one explanation. You must have done something to make God angry. Repent. Repent, and maybe God will have mercy on you. And of course, Job doesn't really get it either, because his implicit assumption is that his suffering is a direct result of personal, or his, his implicit assumption is that uh, suffering in general is the result of sin. And so to him, God must be wrong because he didn't commit any real sin that causes the consequences that he's receiving. And so the cosmic bookkeeper must have made a mistake in the record books, the margins, maybe he didn't carry the one or something. This is why when Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, it's not a cry of confidence in God as it's been appropriated in some praise and worship songs like Nicole C. Mullins' um, one, which bears the same title. Uh, but rather it's a cry of, of self-confidence in his own righteousness over and against what's happening um, in God's plan for him. But what none of the human characters have in the story is the introduction of the book. I'm sure we're all familiar with the heavenly wager that Satan strikes up with God, betting that upon experiencing suffering, Job would reject God. Job and his friends don't know that he's being used to bring God glory over and against the accusations of the devil. And he also doesn't know that God is planning on restoring Job with even more blessings at the end of the book than he had at the beginning of the book. But before God restores those blessings to Job, and before he puts the friends who are accusing Job to shame, he has to encounter Job. After all this back and forth between Job and his friends, this meaningless theological meandering, the Lord steps into time and space to directly address Job in the form of a whirlwind, which is symbolic of God's power over nature, his infiniteness, his absolute power. 
What Job most likely expected was that God would come and say, Job, I'm really sorry that I made some sort of mistake in how I treated you. We had a really busy season up in heaven the past few months. My head's just not on straight right now. I hadn't had my morning coffee. Please forgive me, and here are your dead kids back. But God doesn't do what Job expects. If anything, on first read, God might come off as a bit inconsiderate to our modern sensibilities given Job's plight. God begins his encounter of Job with a very strong question, a question that we should all ponder. Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without wisdom? Despite Job's life experiences of hardship, pain, suffering, and despite his friend's great amount of collective wisdom, none can compare to the deep, mysterious counsels of the Lord. So all of Job and his friend's words have been without any real knowledge because they have not rightly left Job's circumstances up to God's will and his movements. After asking the question, who is this that darkens my counsel by words without wisdom, God then instructs Job, this is one of my favorite commands in all scripture, gird up your loins like a man, or in modern language, brace yourself. Because what follows is God asking a series of almost taunting questions that no man in his right mind could actually even attempt to answer. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurement? Who laid its cornerstone at the beginning of all creation? Who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb? Have you, Job, caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the deep sea? Have you seen the gates of death and deep darkness? Have you comprehended the vastness of the earth? Of course Job hasn't done any of those things. None of us have. And that, that is the whole point of the Job reading. God is not like feeble Job or like feeble us. In fact, he's the exact opposite. He's so vast. He's so huge. He's so beyond our comprehension. He's so other. But if you paid attention to the psalm that we prayed, you may have picked up on similar nature imagery being employed by the psalmist to describe the Lord. Verses 23 through 27 said, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in the calamity. They reeled and straggled like drunkards and were at their wit's end. Yet the first verse that we read in that psalm exclaims and emphasizes something that Job doesn't get in the Job reading. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Even more than that, verse 28 picks up, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He made the storm be still. In ancient Near East, the storm and the seas are symbols of chaos. God orders the sea and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for what? His steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. You see, God may be incomprehensible. He may be transcendent and he may be other. 
But one thing he has revealed about himself, one thing that we understand in the pages of Scripture and the proclamation of the church is that he is good. My ninth grade students had a summer reading assignment. We do American literature in ninth grade, and uh, we focus on civil rights literature. So we start with Uncle Tom's Cabin. So their summer reading assignment is to read the first half of Uncle Tom's Cabin. But before they read that, I'm making them read the Exodus account. Because if you've ever read Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's a lot of imagery in it that calls back to the Exodus, kind of a parallel between Israel escaping slavery and the slave community here in America escaping slavery. And it's definitely not an accident on Harry Beecher Stowe's part. So I'm having them read through the Exodus account prior to reading their, um, their summer reading and then once more once they finish. So I got an email from one of the rising ninth graders, though it's pre precisely because she expressed this concern that she happens to be one of my favorite students. Mr. Walker, she said, I've been doing the signed biblical reading you gave us for the summer and I have some questions. I hope they're okay questions because I'm not trying to sound disrespectful or anything. I'm just very curious. In the Exodus reading, it says that God is the one who closed the sea over the Egyptians and that the Israelites were told God to praise him because of their deaths. How does that square with the fact that God is love? It's a good question. It's a question that all of us should be wrestling with when we read that story. We shouldn't shy away from legitimately difficult parts of the Bible, something that they did do in our old lectionary when we were using the same one that the Episcopal Church did. It's been fixed since the Anglican Church in North America's lectionary came out. On the one hand, God's goodness is difficult to comprehend. How is killing the Egyptians good? Was Job's suffering redemptive or was it gratuitous? It's like when Mr. Beaver is discussing Aslan with Lucy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, said Mr. Beaver. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Yet on the other hand, there's something about God's love and goodness that we innately grasp and understand. He's given us all relationships like deep, close friendships, marriage, parenthood, which all function as types of what God's goodness and love towards us might look like. Of course, our types are not nearly as perfect as God's form, yet in certain moments of friendships, marriage, being a parent, or whatever else, there are certain glimpses into how that divine love might operate. In those moments where we enjoy deep conversations with our friends or where we bare our souls to our spouses or when we look down at our poor helpless child who's crying and pooping and utterly dependent on us for existence and for some reason the only emotion that we feel for them is absolute love. However much we love our friends, our spouses, or our children, God's steadfast love is always, always, always going to be infinitely more than that. His steadfast love, his covenantal faithfulness will always be there, even when it's unrequited, or worse, when it's disrespected, when it's spit on, when it's trampled by us, the very objects of that love. I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And here's the thing. Some people take the Old Testament. They take verses like the Egyptians being killed, or they take the book of Job, and they say things like, well, that was then, and this is now, two separate times. And I hate when people say that so much. 
It's the worst. Don't say that. Because the God of the Old Testament is the same unchanging, all-loving, infinite, vast God who you encounter in the pages of the New Testament through Christ. And the life of the New Covenant Church testifies to that behalf. In our Mark reading, we see Christ, who is the very form of the Father, calming the storm. It goes back to the questions asked about nature from Job. Who could possibly control the waves and the wind and the clouds and the rain and the lightning and the thunder? Only God. And of course, Christ is God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So the same God who told Job to gird up his loins and asked him all those questions that he couldn't possibly have answered. It's the same God who is present with the disciples in the boat, controlling nature, calming the storm, providing peace and safe haven for the people helpless on a boat. In fact, the disciples saw this happen, and the text says they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Contrary to Job, the disciples embody what our reaction should be to an all-powerful being, filled with great awe and wonder. Who is this who could make the wind and seas obey him? Who is this? Have you experienced that awe lately? This weekend, I followed the advice of writer Don Miller, who I don't recommend most of his books, but Blue Like Jazz was one of his big books. I read it at a formative time in my life and and am ashamed to say it influenced me greatly. Um, But there's this one thing that he talks about in that book. It's either in that book or one of his other books where he says that sometimes in the morning in the shower, he takes a minute and just feels his toes. And just the fact that you can do that, that there's something there to feel is almost a mystical encounter, right? It fills you with awe and wonder that you can feel through your toes. That's only possible because God is holding all things together through the Son who created all things and is in all things. I got to fly for the first time to Dallas since I was two or three, so I don't remember the first time I was ever on a plane to attend the conference that I went to. In the air, the thought occurred to me that everything below us on the plane that we could see is sustained by God, which was pretty cool. And thankfully, and I initially put hopefully because I was writing this prior to my return, God sustained our plane and everything in it. And God is also sustaining everything above us too, even when we're at 10 to 30,000 feet in the sky. Yet let me tell you something about God that's even more awe-inspiring that should leave us in a constant state of amazement and wonder. Like we saw in our prayer from Psalm 107, God loves us. God is faithful to us. The only place where it's expressed more clearly than in our second reading, second Corinthians reading today, is the bloody and crucified God hanging lifeless on the cross for you and for me, which is why the crucifix is such a central symbol for us. What God is doing in Christ is even more wonderful, magnificent, vast, infinite than the creation. In verse 14 of our 2 Corinthians reading, it says, Christ died for all, a reality that we're convinced of. Because of Christ's death, all have died, something that we identify with in our baptisms. But there's a telos, there's an end, there's a purpose for that dying. 
that we might no longer live to ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Because we're so filled with awe and wonder at the mystery of creation, the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection and salvation, that we take off our old self and we put on the new. The old passes away and the new has come. And it's there that we identify with Christ and we live in the new humanity that he created by incorporating us into the divine life. The result is that if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything has passed away. See, everything has become new. So what's the result of this? Paul continues by telling us that we have a ministry of reconciliation. And there's a sense in which reconciliation is a function of those ordained ministers that Christians engage in every week. You'll notice that we will, after we say the Nicene Creed and we do the prayers of the people, we'll get on our knees, we'll say a prayer of confession, and then I'll stand up. And the absolution that I've been reading for quite some time is the one from the 1928 prayer book, which says this, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desires not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live, has given power and commandment to his ministers to declare and pronounce the people, being penitent, the absolution and remission of their sins. He pardons and absolves those who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. Wherefore, let us beseech him to grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit, that those things may please him which we do at this present, and that the rest of our life hereafter may be pure and holy, so that at the last we may come to his eternal joy through Jesus Christ our Lord. Similarly, you can always, always, come to Father Jim or to me or Deacon Josh if we're not around if you want to participate in private confession. Sometimes there are sins that we commit where we need to hear that we're forgiven for those sins. And the reason that's a ministerial function and not something that we do just kind of willy-nilly is that because we practice the seal of confession. No matter what you confess in the confessional, we will never say anything about it outside of the room because that's not what we're there to do. What we're there to do for you is pass on God's message of forgiveness and reconciliation to you. No matter what it is that you've done, the gospel is for you. And oftentimes, participating in those confessions, the gospel's for me too, and it's cool to remember that. But there's another sense in which all Christians are called to be ambassadors. All Christians are called to participate in this ministry of reconciliation. It's not exclusively a priestly or pastoral function. It belongs there. It's an important part of what we do, but, and there are certain ways that we do it that we don't think that maybe lay people should, should, but it doesn't belong to us exclusively. As members of the New Covenant's royal priesthood established by Christ, all of us are agents of reconciliation. Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. And in the context of the letter, that's why he's urging the readers to be reconciled to God. And you should be reconciled to God. If you're not, see me afterwards. Um, (laughs) But like Paul, we're tasked with carrying the gospel to all people everywhere so that they might be reconciled to God. You know what's sad? While I was at the conference this weekend, I was talking to one of my peers at Faith Christian School, and her husband went to Liberty, Liberty Seminary. In fact, he's still finishing up. He's got about six classes left. And she told me that the main complaint he had about going to seminary, he's taking a little bit of a break, but the main complaint he had about going to seminary is that the Bible went from a book that gives life 
to an academic exercise, a purely intellectual endeavor, an artifact to be researched. And she was explaining that since he's taken a break from the seminary world, he's had a tough time reverting back to reading it in order to savor the life-giving words given to us by God through his church, through the prophets, through the apostles. And you know what? I knew exactly what she was talking about because the same things happened to me. The same thing happens to me. Things like apologetics, Bible studies, biblical studies, not Bible, Bible studies are good, biblical studies as an academic discipline, seminary classes, etc., are necessary. They're so necessary. In fact, we probably have too little of them. But, but at the same time, we should never lose sight of the fact that the reason that people aren't Christians is rarely an intellectual one. Our minds don't follow our hearts, but vice versa. Our hearts, our, our hearts don't follow our minds. Our minds follow our hearts is what I'm trying to say. People aren't Christians because they have disordered loves. And because they have disordered loves, their thinking is all out of whack. So if we are to be agents of reconciliation, and if we are to reach the world with the declaration that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, which, by the way, is my favorite benediction at the end of the service. Um, I'm sure you've noticed that by this point, and you can probably expect it today. If we are to really convey this reality to the people that we encounter, and by the way, that's literally anywhere that we go, anywhere where we encounter people, whether it's work or the golf course or wherever you are, we don't get the luxury of curtaining off parts of our lives as if we can be a minister of God's reconciliation in some places, but not here, wherever here is for you. So if we're to be these agents of reconciliation, if we're to reach individuals who don't know God, a syllogism is not likely to be your most effective tool. You know what is? Wonder, awe, beauty. The facts about our universe that I listed at the beginning, the questions God poses to Job, and even a story like Christ calming the storms should inspire wonder and awe not intellectual explanation. Only nature's lawgiver could suspend those laws in such a magnificent way. Only the sustainer of being could keep this thing that we call reality going. Yet to the degree that those things give us a sense of wonder, there's something that should give us even more. God reconciled you to himself through the work of Christ. One of the comfortable words which I always read after confession and absolution is a verse that's been my favorite since I was in high school, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the, into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The last part, I am the worst, is Paul's own admission. But we could all substitute our own selves because we know the secret sins that we do that make us the worst of sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I, Father Wesley Walker of Lynchburg, Virginia, am the worst. Yet God is faithful. God moves, God works, God loves, God forgives, God heals. And that's the most awe-inspiring fact that exists in the universe, that in baptism, Christ draws you to himself, reconciling you to God. Out of hearts of stone, hearts of flesh. Out of sinners, saints. Out of death, life. Out of rebels, friends. 
the moment we think we've grasped that mystery, the moment we aren't amazed by that, the moment that we think we can break that down syllogistically to express the beauty and goodness of that reality, the moment that we act as though it's just another thing that we know along with how big the universe is, the moment that we think those things is the moment that we cease to be effective ministers of reconciliation to the world. Rather than seeing miracle as commonplace, which sometimes is what we do in the seminary world, rather than seeing miracle as commonplace, we should see the world through the lens of the radical grace that Christ gives us that should make us see the commonplace as a miracle, a grounds where the redemption of Christ is happening right now. God is transcendent. He's what we could never be. God is imminent, as St. Augustine says. He's nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Those two realities are instrumental for how we live. And for the rest of the service, I want you to listen very carefully to what we say in the liturgy, especially our Eucharistic prayer, which is going to be C, the Star Wars one today. Yet the undergirding principle, the thing that we see in his eminence and his transcendence and the way those two things are held together is that God loves us with a love that is never failing, with a love that never gives up, and with a love that's always reconciling. So to conclude, let's think about that, what that means. And I'm just going to read a hymn that kind of came to my mind this weekend. Um, there is a fountain by William Cooper. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lost all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and where my, may I, though vile is he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away, wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. That all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supplied. Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. 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 Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.